first reading is from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 39. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, Who do you want with, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this into the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from what the demons had gone out, from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Grassanes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. It's nice to, to be up here and bringing God's word to you. Keep uh, Luke chapter 8 open. Let me pray. Father God, we don't want to be fools. We want to build our life on truth. We want to trust what is trustworthy, to hope in what will happen, to believe in what is real. And so we ask whether we're new to these things or familiar with them, that you would open our eyes to truth, that we might understand and believe, that we might recognize truth, and that we might know who Jesus is, that we might rely on him. Amen. Now, the focus as we get into Luke 8 of his reliable historical account of Jesus' life, it moves from Jesus' sayings to his doings. Jesus isn't just a man who's all word and no action, as we find out. And as the focus shifts, so the, the question gets sharper. We've been seeing throughout Luke that the, the question in these early chapters is, who is this man? Who on earth is this man? And 
the question gets a little bit sharper tonight in the second half of Luke 8. And it's really this question, how big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus? I don't mean is he five foot seven or six foot four when you imagine him. I mean, is your idea of Jesus quite small and, and domesticated? Or is it untamed and almighty? Or put it this way, you can put it the sharpest. Can you ever imagine being frightened of Jesus? Can you ever imagine being frightened of Jesus? Now, I think there's a real danger that in our culture, we have a kind of children's Bible view of Jesus. Uh, You see him as this man with lovely soft hands and rosy cheeks and Hollywood hair and a well-groomed beard. A nice man, a gentleman. Tremendous news if what you're looking for in life is a shoulder to cry on. But not much good, really, if you're caught up in raging storm or facing war. You see, the problem is children's Bible Jesus is no use to us in the reality of life outside of church. Because the issues of life, well, often they are chaotically wild and uncontrollable and quite overwhelming. Uh, Terrorism that strikes completely randomly just as they lower the threat level. Cancer, divorce, redundancy, sin, guilt, and ultimately death. Those things are way too big for us to handle on our own, and they are far too big for children's Bible Jesus to deal with. We need a God who is big enough to handle the storms of life if we're really going to put our trust in him. Otherwise, what's the point? And what Luke wants to do is to stretch our minds, our view of Jesus. He wants to blow our minds a little. Not to make up Jesus, but to show us the real Jesus was quite unlike children's Bible Jesus. The Jesus of history is more than big enough to put your trust in. And no matter what life may throw at us, at you... What I want to tell you tonight is that Jesus is more than big enough for you to trust him. Luke convinces of this, I think, as he shows us two incidents where Jesus takes things from chaos to calm. And we'll run through uh, the outline you've got, um, storm on a lake and a storm on a man, before we tease out a couple of important lessons. So Luke chapter 8, verse 22, a storm on a lake. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. So Jesus and the disciples, presumably uh, with the women who were recorded in 8, 1 to 3, this group, so maybe 15, 20 of them, they're heading across the lake, and Jesus is utterly exhausted. He has just poured himself out meeting the needs of the people, teaching, ministering, leading, helping, healing. And so he falls asleep on a pile of nets in, uh, in the bow of the boat. It's a rather nice day for sailing, as it turns out. There's a nice, gentle breeze. No need for them to lean on the oars too much. But then a little way out from land on the, on the Sea of Galilee, on this lake, the, the breeze starts to you know, pick up a little bit. It's a nuisance, gusts sort of buffeting them around a bit, and the lake is unpleasantly choppy. 
Now, you can imagine uh, some of the disciples, in my mind's eye, Matthew the tax collector, I don't see him as a great sailor. I don't know why. It might be totally unfair. But you can imagine him looking a little green, gripping the side of the boat, feeding the fishes, uh, while the uh, fishermen like Peter um, have a good laugh and reef the sails in just a little bit to cope with the bigger gusts. But then the wind starts to turn really violent. And the sea starts to worry the fishermen as much as the landlubbers. And things are beginning to get a bit exciting. They're roping people together and passing around buckets, not for people to puke into, but to bail out the water that's starting to crash over the sides of the boat. Uh, The waves are swamping them. They're knee-deep in water. The water's sluicing around. People are in danger of being washed overboard. And the sailors aren't laughing anymore. They're actually panicking. This is really serious. They're in danger of being drowned. They're in a massive storm. They're a long way from land, and they're a long way from being safe. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below, um, below sea level. And when a cold front comes in, it basically just rushes down the steep walls of the hills around. And it can hit the lake, and it will turn from beautifully calm breeze to a violent storm in no time. A total boat wrecker of a storm that no one could have seen coming. And in the middle of the mayhem... A couple of the disciples stagger, soaking wet to the front of the boat, and they grab hold of the exhausted sleeping body. And one of them shakes Jesus and and wakes him above the storm and says, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, I always thought this was a bit ridiculous. I mean, it can't have been that bad a storm if Jesus is still asleep. But uh, my brother was a a soldier, and um, one time during his training, they were out on exercise at night, and the, uh, the training staff basically did an attack through their, um, through their position to simulate what it's like to be attacked at night. And so there are thunder flashes, explosions, uh, machine gun fire, mayhem, chaos. And then, you know, everything sort of dies down. An hour later, they're at the rendezvous point and they realize that uh, he's missing. They go back and find he's still asleep in his tent. Scorch marks at the side of the tent. He's still fast asleep. It is possible to sleep through almost anything if you're a deep sleeper. This is a seriously dangerous storm and a seriously tired man. And they stagger to him and they scream, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, I kind of wonder, what did they expect Jesus to do at this point? I'm not altogether sure. I just think they've got used to the fact that when there's trouble, you go to Jesus. What does happen? Verse 24, the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Jesus stands up and tells off the wind and the waves like they're a naughty child in year one. Look, stop it. Sit down right now. Thank you. No, no, hang on a second. That's the wind and the waves he's talking to. The forces of nature. And he just commands them like a a small child, except unlike a small child, they do exactly what he says immediately. It's extraordinary. I mean, can you imagine it? One minute being thrown about, mountainous waves crashing over the side of the boat, being washed across the deck, terrified, fearing for your life. And then the next moment, just flat, dead calm. Eerie quiet, torn sails hanging limp from the mast, not a sound, just the dripping of water. Who obeys you? Your team at work? 
children you teach, sports side you captain, your pet. The natural world in its most terrifying and wild and unruly, it obeys Jesus instantly. No questions, no hesitation. I've been on a tall ship in a force eight gale in the North Sea. And when the wind died down quite quickly, quite suddenly, it still took another day for the sea to calm down and to take about another two days before anybody could keep any food down. But it takes the waves just keep going. It's just the way it is. This is very different. This isn't a strange anomaly. This is a miracle. A complete freak of nature is no explanation for what happens. What's going on here is very simple. The natural world recognizes its creator and does what it's told. It says, oh, okay. You're in charge. Jesus rebuked nature, and then he rebukes the disciples, interestingly. Verse 25. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They'd seen enough to know that they could trust Jesus. They should have put two and two together by this stage. Storm on the lake, next to Storm and the Man, verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. So having turned the raging storm into dead calm, Jesus allows the wind to pick up just enough to dry out the clothes and to get the boat moving across the lake to the other side. So if we've got the map, um, you'll see they're going, if you, you'll see a split in the colors on that side. Uh, the west side, and that's where they're heading. They've been on this side, um, up in the, in the northeast, and they're heading across there to the west, to Gergesa. So they're now in um, the Gerasene or Gadarene area, which is a Gentile area, hence there are pig farms there, which there wouldn't have been in Israel. And a very different kind of storm confronts them as they arrive. Not a storm of natural origin, but a storm of evil, a storm inside a man. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Now, this is not a pre-medical, pre-scientific understanding of seizures and epilepsy. Matthew 4.24, the gospel writers explicitly distinguish demon possession from seizures and epilepsy. They're not stupid. They have a, a more primitive understanding of medical things, but they knew the difference. They knew the difference. This is something else entirely. This is, this is pure evil. And if you think about it, if you, if you just run with the thought experiment that the Christmas story is true, that God becomes a human being and invades the world, you kind of expect, well, there's going to be a little bit of pushback if God appears it's no surprise that this is a time, unlike the rest of biblical history, full of demonic possession and anger and, and warfare. It is what's happening. God has declared war on the forces of evil, and he has invaded their territory. And of course, there's going to be some pushback. So let's look at the confrontation. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains 
and had been driven by the demon into a solitary place. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now we see how serious the situation is from a number of things that Luke records, just to explain things for us. So firstly, uh, the victims naked and living around the tombs, back one page on verse 27. There is something dehumanizing about the demonic influence, the influence of evil in someone's life. And death, the tombs. He's comfortable around death. This is a really dark, dark situation. Then verse 29 tells us he has terrifying power. He breaks ropes and chains that have been used to bind him. And lastly, the whole pig thing. What, I mean, that's the big question most people have when they turn to this passage. What has Jesus got against the pigs? The answer is nothing. So why does he do this? For the very simple reason, if Jesus had just said, go out of the man and the demons had gone out, you'd think, oh, okay, he's cast out some demons. Uh, Mark tells us there are about 2,000 pigs. When Jesus allows the demons to go out of the man and into the pigs, and 2,000 pigs hurl themselves into the lake and drown themselves in a suicidal frenzy, you realize, oh, that was what was inside him. My goodness. You start to see the awesome power and the wickedly destructive intention of these demonic forces that had gripped this poor man. Now, once more, at the heart of this account is the question of authority and identity. See, here is a man controlled not just by one demon, by an army of them, legion they call themselves. A legion of the Roman army had a few thousand soldiers. And yet, look what happens when this legion of demonic forces meets just one man, Jesus. A demonic army that can snap chains and destroy 2,000 pigs in an instant, sees Jesus, collapses on his knees, and begs for mercy. The point of the verses 28 and 31 is the demons know their day is coming. They know they will be destroyed by God in judgment and cast into the abyss. And they are powerless in the presence of God's king. They recognize who Jesus is. They recognize that he is the one who is sovereign even over them. What happens next? Verse 34, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Now I wondered, did you notice as we heard the passage read how Luke has carefully matched the two accounts? He wants us to see the links, the parallels 
Both involve, as we said, chaos to calm. A storm is stilled. Verse 24a, uh, one moment there is wind and raging waters. Jesus speaks, and the next moment all was calm. Likewise, you've then got a man possessed by raging demons who can break chains and send a herd of pigs into frenzied suicide. Jesus speaks, verse 35, the man is sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Jesus calms a storm on a lake, and then he calms a storm in a man. Now, what's the ultimate danger faced in both episodes? Verse 24, what is it the disciples say? Master, master, we're going to drown. Verse 33, what is it that the demons do? They came out of the man, went into the pigs, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. How do people respond afterwards in both incidents? Beginning of verse 25, the disciples were full of fear and amazement. End of verse 35, the townsfolk, and they were afraid. Verse 37, they were overcome with fear. Now this leads to actually the most interesting question to my mind in the whole section. Why were the people afraid? Do you see both accounts? I mean, facing a storm on, that fishermen think is going to drown them, or being confronted by a legion of death-eating demons, that's going to be terrifying, utterly terrifying. And yet, and yet, the word for fear only appears in both accounts after everything is calm. All was calm, verse 24. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Verse 35. When they saw the man sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Overcome with fear, they asked him to leave. You thought, your town is being terrorized by a demonic, possessed, a legion of demons possessing a man. Jesus appears, casts him out. You think, hang on, this is fairy tales. You've got the dragon. Uh, you've got the terrified townsfolk. The hero comes in, slays the dragon. The townsfolk say, yay. They don't say, get out. It's just, it makes no sense, does it? What's the ultimate danger too? Well, the ultimate danger, they seem to think, is, is in the man they see in front of them. The answer comes at the very end. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Luke's been hinting this throughout his gospel, right from the first page. But now he makes it explicit. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So he went and said, Jesus has done amazing things for me. Do you get it? Luke wants us to answer the disciples' question from verse 25. Who is this that commands the wind and the waves? It is God, only God. Who is it that can drive out evil? It is God. See, the disciples would have read Psalm 107 in the Old Testament of the Bible. Psalm 107 is... Uh, at the beginning of the, the final book of the Psalms, and it makes it clear that the only one who can save from a storm at sea is God Almighty. Let me read Psalm 107, verses 23. 
Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. Jesus is none other than the Lord of the Old Testament, God Almighty. See, the point Luke's making is Jesus is not some Marvel movie godlet, some kind of souped-up version of an ordinary human being. He's you know, quite an amazing man. Now, he's the one who, at the beginning of time, spoke, and every atom of creation came into being. And he is the one who, at the end of time, will speak another word and will destroy all evil in his final judgment. He is the full-on, uncreated creator of the Old Testament, squeezed into human flesh. That's why the disciples and the townsfolk are frankly terrified. They realize the big, hairy, uncontrollable, enormous God of the Old Testament, him is here right with us now. That is overwhelming. And if you can't imagine doing what the disciples did and falling on your knees, trembling at Jesus' power, if you can't imagine responding as the, the townsfolk did, being so intimidated by the power of Jesus that you, you, you want space between you and him, then I would gently suggest you may be dealing with the Jesus of your imagination rather than the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible. You see, I, can, I have to say, I can understand when, why some people really don't like Jesus. As a minister, people often are quite happy to give me their opinions about Jesus. I'm quite happy to give them mine, so I don't mind really. Um, but people often tell me, I just don't like Jesus. And I get that. He's not a comfortable or a convenient figure. He demands everything from us. He wants your complete worship. He wants you. I mean, the picture of baptism is your old life dies and your new life is in him. That's pretty all-consuming. I can understand why people say, look, I don't want this Jesus demanding my life. I can understand why many people love him. Because this God who has all power uses that power to serve and to save us. I'll tell you what I can't understand. What makes absolutely no sense to me at all, and that is the indifference. The shrug, the meh, just not really bothered. I mean, you've got the most influential man in all of history that's that's not up for grabs that's just a statement of fact and you've got the one who if he's telling the truth is the lord who created everything and the judge who holds your eternal destiny in his hand now you can hate him or you can love him but to ignore him it's just irrational to ignore him with a casual shrug There is a very real sense in which the disciples and the townsfolk get something right. That Jesus is more terrifying than a storm that could destroy you or an army of demons. 
It's not that Jesus is wild and unpredictable and you don't know what he'll do. He'll just blaze against you like uh, capricious Greek gods of the classical myths. It's much less that he's vicious and enjoys destruction and death like the demons, like some of the Canaanite gods. It's just this. The real Jesus of history, accurately recorded in the Bible, is not a God you can control. He's not a pocket-sized God who will fit comfortably into your existing life, giving you the forgiveness you want and and answering our pocket-sized prayers that work would go well and he'd give me a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. No, no, the real Jesus comes as God and King with unlimited power and unlimited authority over the world and our lives. And that is uncomfortable. But it's also not the end of the story because Jesus doesn't want us to cower before him. In verse 25, he tells the disciples they should have had faith. Where is your faith, he says. He doesn't want us running from him in terror. He wants us running to him in trust because he uses his power not to crush us, but to save us. How big is your Jesus was the question I asked at the start. Luke's historical account assures us there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that you might face in your life that is too big for Jesus. That's why Luke records these two incidents. So that you and I would have assurance as we face our lives and as we face a world that I think our generation, your generation, is finding is a whole lot less secure than we had imagined when we were children. And Luke wants to reassure us, you do not need to be afraid if you know this Jesus. There's nothing you might face as you journey through life that he can't handle. If he can command the forces of nature, shut up, sit down, be still. If he can command an army of of demonic power, go on, out, go. I mean, it makes a rubbish movie, actually, this, this, this section, a really rubbish movie, because the action just happens like that. There's no great battle, there's no tussle. Jesus isn't thrown overboard and, and as he's being cast down into the depths, he cries out and just, ma- no, no, it's just, it says a word and it's all over. You're like, what? Oh, that's a bit dull. It's like that. He is God. It's not a fair fight. But you know what? I don't want it to be a fair fight. When I live in a dangerous world, when I face serious issues, terrorism, redundancy, cancer. I don't want it to be a fair fight. I want to trust the one who I know is going to win. And Jesus is like that. Bring your fears to him. Real Jesus is big enough for everything. And if he doesn't rescue us from the storms we face, it's not because they're too big for him to handle. I mean, we've seen that. Or because he doesn't care about little old me and the whole big world. It's Because he knows what's best. He knows what's best and perhaps he wants us to learn to be at peace in the middle of the storm. Safe in the knowledge that with him in the boat we can still sleep. Trusting everything to him. But before we stop, I just want to uh, consider one other thing that I noticed for the first time studying uh, the passage this time. Which is, Luke wants us to have Psalm 107 in our minds. Obviously, that's the the key bit of the Old Testament, which talks about God as the one who controls the raging storm. Okay, so Jesus is God. 
But as I looked at Psalm 107, and not just that little bit, but the whole of Psalm 107, I noticed it's about a whole lot more than God has power over the forces of nature. It's actually a psalm all about God saving you from your sins. You see, the psalm has, if you read it later, it has four pictures. Four pictures of God rescuing us from our sin. And the last and the longest is this one, that there's a great storm at sea, and yet God stills it and rescues his people. That is not an accident that the psalmist reaches for that image to picture our salvation. Throughout the Bible, a storm, right from the start, a great storm, and especially a storm of chaotic waters, is the symbol of God's judgment, of God's judgment against human wickedness. Now, I don't know whether the disciples connected the dots at the time, but later on, as they saw Jesus endure the dark storm of God's wrath as he hung on the cross and the sun was blotted out as he died in our place, they would have realized that as amazing as that experience in the boat was, it was only ever a picture to help them see that Jesus could do something far harder and far greater that was invisible something they couldn't see. And that was that he could still the storm of God's wrathful judgment that I deserve for my sin. The overwhelming storm of God's judgment came crashing down as Jesus died on the cross. And he calmed it, not by speaking a word this time, but by staying silent and enduring, absorbing in himself, in his body, the punishment and death I deserve. It's unthinkable to us that Almighty God, who can command the wind and the waves, would somehow submit himself to death. And yet that's what he did to save us. And having absorbed God's judgment, the storm that should destroy me on the cross, well, he's able to do what he does for this other man, which is getting rid of evil without getting rid of us. No, it's different for us. It's, we're not possessed by a demon. But evil's inside us. It's in my heart and in yours too. But having absorbed the justice of God's wrath on the cross, Jesus can deal with the evil inside us and wash us clean and change us and make our hearts whole again. And tonight we've seen two people symbolically receive that forgiveness, that washing. But it's open to any of us. You don't have to jump in the water after the service. Uh, I advise you not to. It's freezing. (laughs) But if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive something much better than the ritual, the symbol. You receive the reality. Your sins washed away. Assurance that the storm of God's wrathful judgment has been taken. And that for you, that for you there is peace with God and a certainty that he is your God and he will be with you forever. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the historical Jesus Christ. We thank you for the remarkable life he lived. But we thank you that these weren't random acts of power to to impress us. Thank you that they demonstrate that he is the one who can deal with the the judgment that should be ours. And he is the one who can overcome the evil that we 
cannot deal with. We pray that you would help us to put our trust in him, that we might receive his forgiveness. And we pray that those of us who trust him would not be overwhelmed with anxiety in this life, that we would look to the Lord Jesus, we would look to his power over the storm and over the demons, and we would not be afraid, for we know who holds our lives in his hands. We know he is mighty, and we know he is good. Amen.